one thing you've done in that testimony of God's grace to you is give my introduction. Because my introduction was all based on peace. So you've given the introduction to the sermon because what you have given us is a peace in the midst of circumstances that are not peaceful in our world. Loss, grief. The world thinks about peace and they think about peace as the absence of conflict. So two nations at war will come together and, and say they want to have peace and all they mean by that is they're going to stop shooting at each other. They still hate each other. They still have animosity. The same thing happens in relationships oftentimes, that someone will keep their mouth shut so they have peace, but they still have animosity. You've given the peace and the eternal peace that Christ gives in the midst of death, in the midst of uncertain circumstances. Well, where do we get that? Well, Mike's already told us. We get that from our Lord Jesus Christ, who left his peace, not the peace of the world, but his peace. And in, the, in, in Isaiah that we're tracking through right now in chapter 11, the whole theme of chapter 11 is the peace that Christ brings in his righteous rule and reign. Because of what Christ has done based on his character, which is perfect, based on the endowment of the spirit that God has given him, which we learned about last week, he rules and reigns over a kingdom that is peace. That's the message to Isaiah's people in his time in the 8th century, it's a message to us. But it's not just for us to say, well, I'm thankful that Jesus gives us peace. It's for us to say, what's my role in the advancement of that peace? How does, that, how does it rule over me in a way that I see the advancement? And that is all what chapter 11 is about. So turn, if you will, and stand to Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole chapter because, as I told you last week, chapter 11 is the entire, um, is one section in itself, but we couldn't cover it in one week. So we went through verses 1 through 5 last week. So I want to begin with that and read all the way to the end of the chapter. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze their young, the, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hands over the river, with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria from the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses, all 16 verses, we are shown five characteristics of, of the Lord's branch and his rule. And we looked last week, the passage we just read in the first five verses, and we saw the Lord's branch is a fruitful Davidic king. And we saw also that the Lord's branch rules with the endowment of the Holy Spirit. And we saw that the Lord's branch rules with righteousness and faithfulness. So last week it was clear that we were talking about the coming of the Messiah promised in the Old Testament and we were seeing when the Messiah comes. Here is the Messiah, here is his, his origin so to speak and we'll talk about that more as we get even a, a, a slightly different term coming up in chapter 11 verse 10. But where he comes from, his, and we saw last week that it was both his divine and his humanness in the incarnation of the Messiah of Jesus and then we saw that the Holy Spirit had endowed him, and therefore he ruled out of this character that he was endowed with by the Holy Spirit, the ability to judge and rule with righteousness, both in blessing his people and taking care of his enemies. And I made the division last week between chapter, verse 5 and verse 6, even though verses 6 through 9 kind of fit with 1 through 5 in the flow of things, because 6 till the end of the chapter we have the question before us of when. Isn't that what you're thinking as you're reading through that? When? When does all this happen? Well, what I, want you, what I want us to do today is I want us to set all of our eschatological presuppositions aside. You know what I mean by eschatological? That, that, that study of the last things. And if you have uh, uh, presuppositions about eschatology and the millennial kingdom and all of that, I just want you to set that aside and let us look at the text of Isaiah chapter 11 and see what the text tells us about the time. Can we do that? And you're going to say, no, not really, because I've studied this for years and years, and I'm still a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. I was in that camp for many years. But it really doesn't matter today how our eschatology has been forming. What matters is we let the text speak. And then at the end, however our roads take us to the final, we know that we're in unity. Because that's the unity that Christ purchased for us. So this morning, beginning in verse 6, where we, we have this idea of, of, of the question that invades us, the question of time, we'll answer that in due course. 
But we'll see the fourth characteristic of the Lord's branch and his rule in that the Lord's branch rules over a peaceful kingdom, a peaceful kingdom. Look at verse 6. We're still in the genre of poetry here, right? So we know that the rules for poetry exist for us, that there are parallelisms, and and sometimes these parallelisms give us two ways of stating the same thing. Sometimes it intensifies. The second one intensifies the first. Sometimes they're, they're giving the opposite opinion, making one statement, and the second half of the parallelism will give us the other um, opposite end of it. So we're looking at this, and we're saying, we also know that in poetry there can be pictures and metaphors, right? that are used that are not to be taken literal, but sometimes they are to be taken literal. And in literal in the sense that the words that are on the page are actually what's going to happen. We always take it literally. Amen? Even if it's, even if it's figurative, the literal interpretation of poetry that is figurative is to interpret it as a figure of speech. We don't just set it aside. Our, our way of looking at Scripture is the Scripture says what it says, and it's our job to figure out what it says through the, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So look at this glorious picture beginning in verse 6. A wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now, we're just going to stop right there. We're not going to take every one of these phrases and pull it apart. But isn't that the ultimate picture of an adversary and a prey? Isn't that the ultimate picture of, of someone who is a hunter and someone who is a prey? It works itself into our language. It's biblical language when we say something like a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's biblical language. When Paul visits with the elders in Acts chapter 20 of the New Testament, he grabs the Ephesian elders and he meets with them in Miletus and he, he warns them to shepherd the flock of God among them because there will be wolves that rise up from outside and from within inside. So he's using the same metaphor. Shepherd the flock of God. So the flock of God are sheep, lambs, and yet there will be wolves. So it's it's... It's the perfect description of an adversary and their prey. But Isaiah says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Now that is more than just they're going to share the same forest or pasture. It's more than that. This idea has the idea of dwell with as a sojourner. So it has the idea of dwelling with with the expected hospitality that comes with it. So the dwelling with is the wolf dwells with the lamb as if they're under the same roof sharing the same food. They're, they're, they're in the same place, and all the, all the benefits of the house owner are given to the guest. And so there is a perfect safety that's involved here because in any other situation, the wolf would not dwell with the lamb. The wolf would eat the lamb, yes? So we're talking about an overturning of what we would expect to see. But he gives this in so many different particular ways that it makes me wonder if this is a figure of speech or if this is, he is giving the picture of something that's actually going to obtain where animals actually function like this. The second line, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The leopard would ordinarily eat the young goat. The young goat would be tasty, easy prey right? But yet they're going to lie down together. The safety that's there. It's not just there's peace between them, but the peace is trusted because it's safety. They're lying down together. They're, they're sleeping together. The, the, um, the young goat is not worried that when he closes his eyes or closes her eyes, that that's when the leopard's going to return and be like leopards always do. There is security in these pictures. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. Notice the lion right in the middle. The calf, but not only the calf, the fatted calf. That's a better dinner for that lion, is it not? 
And the, the and connects it. The wolf shall dwell with, the leopard shall lie down with, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. What? They're dwelling with, they're lying down with. We can carry those verbs all the way through. And a little child shall lead them. A little child. So there's no fear in that child. That child is with these animals. And we know some of these animals as, as ones we would never leave our child with. But yet they're not just with them. That little child is what? That little child is leading them. Now at this point, I hope your mind is going, hmm, I wonder if we're talking about a reversal of the curse here. A little child leading them. That dominion mandate, that mandate that, that, that in, in creation, in the creation order where men are supposed to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. That's what this picture is. This child is going to lead them like a shepherd leads them. You picture a shepherd leading the sheep. This is going to be a child doing that. How can a child do it? Because the curse in this picture is reversed. There is no danger to this child, and yet the child is still doing the leading still doing the shepherding. Look at verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze. Now, by now, I think we know we're not just talking about the same field, right? We're talking about a safety between them that the bear is not going to come after the cow. And, and their young shall lie down together. So there again, how many of you mamas are going to let your children lie down with leopards or lions or bears? It ain't going to happen, is it? And yet these do because there is trust. There is complete security. So this security is even pictured as being generational, going on and on. It's an eternal kind of security even in this picture. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. There's another nod back to creation, isn't it? When the animals were given all the leafy plants and the fruit of those plants. So the, the animals killing other animals comes after the fall. So we're thinking of a return, a return to those Edenic principles, a return to Eden. But it even gets even more stark and descriptive for us in verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Now this isn't just, okay, our kids would not play with snakes especially poisonous snakes, right? That's just not going to happen. It's more than that. Notice the words for the, for the children, the, the nursing child and the weaned child. So the one that's still at the mother's breast, that young, but also a little bit older, the weaned child. And the picture here in verse 8, to, that the nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra. This word play, this, this has to do with, with taking delight in, taking sport in. So it's not just playing in the same area, and they can trust the, that the cobra is not going to come out. It's playing with them. It's, it's also pictured in the second line, the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Can you picture it? Can you picture the way a young child would play with you, playing peekaboo or whatever? Can you imagine that? This, this word that we see here in verse 8 that says the adder's den, that literally means light hole. So you can see the snake in the hole looking up to the light and the child playing with it, putting hand over the top of it, the snake coming out. You see the picture that's given? This is, this is the absolute absence of enmity. We're not just talking about a situation that doesn't sound normal. We're talking about a descriptive, colorful situation of a time where there is no sin. There is nothing that would drive 
adversaries toward each other. There's, it is a peace that is obtained only through the absence of sin. Look at verse 9. They, that is all of, the, all of the, the creation, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now remember where we've seen holy mountain before. Holy mountain, if you just turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Remember, we've had these different pictures of the, the ideal kingdom. Looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. It shall come to pass in the latter days. The latter days start with the coming, first coming of Christ, that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountain and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So some of the language from last week and some of the pictures from this week come up that when we talk about the holy mountain, we're talking about the dwelling place of God, Right? Where God dwells, that's the holy mountain. That's the holy place. And so here we're going to see this idea develop throughout the chapter that this is the entire earth. How do I know that? Look at the next verse. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So there will be no hurt or destroying in all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. Why? The earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So this is a picture of the entire earth. This is a picture of not just Jerusalem, the holy mountain, but the earth as the holy mountain. And you say, okay, but you still haven't answered the question, when does this happen? Well, there are some that would say that this happens in a millennial kingdom after Christ returns. And yet the struggle I have with that kind of thinking is that the millennial kingdom will still have sin in it. This is a picture of no animosity at all. The only way this kind of life comes is when sin has been eradicated. Because sin is what drives all of this. Sin is what drives all the enmity in all the pictures that we're giving in, it, given in 6 and 7 and 8 and even in 9. Sin is what drives that. So we have a picture of a time, a kingdom. Remember, this is the, this is the Lord's kingdom, right? This is the, the Messiah who has come. And we, we know he's come because chapter 1, 11, 1 through 5 tell us that he has come. This is the picture of when he comes. So others would say that no, this, because of that, remember, I think I, I, it seems to me that chapter 11 from 1 through 16 is all one section of Scripture. It's all one. It's not disconnected. Well, this is talking about this and this is talking about that. It flows all together as one in different sections, but all together as one. And so there would be people who say, because verses 1 through 5 are talking about the first coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, then that must be what this is talking about as well, especially since 6 through 9 are so connected to 1 through 5 and the, and the rain. It's going to obtain in this age before Christ comes again. And yet... For all the people that I know of that hold to that view, it's still future. 
It's still yet to happen. So we're still talking about something in the future. We don't know when, but something in the future. It's all dependent on when we think all of this happens in relation to the second coming of Christ. Well, as we work through this, I think we're going to see some time markers in here that will help us decide what is actually going on. So this is the the branch ruling over a peaceful kingdom. And I think the rest of our text will help us see when it's happening and what those verses are talking about and how they relate to us today. All the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. This is the same kind of phrase. All the earth shall be full of the glory of Yahweh in Numbers 14, 21, talking about the surety of judgment because God's glory will cover the earth. It's the same language used in Habakkuk 2, 14, where it's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that will cover um, the earth as the waters cover the sea. So this little picture is that it will be full There will be no lacking. Everywhere you look and see sea, you see water. Amen? Even if you're seeing places that are dried up, when you're seeing sea, you're seeing water. Because everywhere that you would call sea is water. It's it's an idiom that shows us completion of everything. So there is coming a time, or it already has come, that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And full, not just full with lacking, And this is what some folks would say. No, it's not going to be perfect before Christ returns, but it will be close to this. Well, this passage doesn't say anything about close to, does it? It says it will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And that, remember the little four that connects it, all six, seven, and eight, and nine, six, seven, and eight are all pictured as being connected to the earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord. Because that little connection word for, why will there be no destruction or hurting on the earth, the holy mountain? Because, or for, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. You say, Rob, you're dodging the question. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not dodging the question. I'm waiting for the text to give me the answer. You see the difference? There's a difference. Well, the Lord's branch rules over a peaceful kingdom, but the fifth characteristic, the Lord's branch rules over a people made of both both the nations, the Gentiles, and the remnant, the Jews. This is what's going to be developed here in verse 10 through 16. Look at verse 10. We move, at least in the ESV's portrayal of it, there's disagreement on this, but I think this is right, that we move in 10 and 11 away from poetry. Your your versions probably have it formatted a little bit differently. And notice that verse 10 and 11 both start with the word, in that day. In what day? In what day are we talking about? The context would say, in the day that 1 through 9 is talking about, right? Right? One through nine happens in that day, in that day. Now, it could be that all of a sudden the focus shifts, and in that day is, is talking about some future time, whether we call that the new heavens and new earth or a millennial kingdom, whatever viewpoint we come down to, we could be talking about that. But if I'm just reading chapter 11, in that day flows from verses, verse 9, which flows from verses 1 through 5. And so in that day seems to be talking about the same time frame, and look what it says in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse. Now look back what we, what we heard in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots, that is Jesse's roots. So we talked about that last week. We talked about the foundation of the coming of the Messiah, the, the foundation of that being the, you know, 
Jesus, the Messiah, is the eternal one, the second person of the Trinity, and it's from him, from this eternal, the eternality, that Jesse comes and David flows from him. But yet he's also a shoot that flows from him. So there's his human side coming as the incarnation, the, the God-man. But now we have in verse 10, in that day, the root. He's not just, as verse 1 says, a branch from Jesse's root. He is Jesse's root. So it's now becoming more full of what we're talking about in, in the book of Revelation in chapter 22. I have it written down here someplace, but I can't find it where it is. 22.16, we have both root and um, shoot talked about at the very end of the scriptures talking that Jesus is saying, I am the root and shoot of David. All these terms are referring to the same thing. This is God's provision of a Messiah that would perfectly keep the law, be the eternal one who sits on David's throne, among many other things. But in this language, so we're reminded again of the totality of this one who's coming as the Messiah. In verses 1 through 5, they've talked about the day that he comes. We, reading this passage now in our day, know that he came, according to the New Testament. Amen? Am I getting ahead of you here? Don't let me get ahead of you. He has already come. Verses 1 through 5 tell us what that will be like. Now we have in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. Well, what does that mean? Stand as a signal for the peoples. This is what happened with Christ, is it not? He was lifted up. A signal, a banner, a, a, an ensign, a standard. In, in the, in the, on the battlefield, they'd raise the standard so the troops would know what to do. They would raise the standard so that the communication with the troops would happen. They would know who was with whom. We, also, we already saw that he was going to raise up a standard to Assyria to bring them in, just like he's whistling for them, remember, in earlier chapters? So if we're talking about the Messiah, which we are, in that day the root of Jesse, now remember, this is the phrase that Paul uses. It's the verse that Paul quotes in Romans 15, 12, to say that God always intended to save Jews and Gentiles, and then he moves right into the very next verses are him saying, and I am a minister to the Gentiles. So he's pulling from here this passage to tell us that God always intended to save Jews and Gentiles, right there in Romans chapter 15. And so when we see how Paul used it, it gives us a little bit of an understanding of what's going on here, that when he is lifted up, let's just turn to two places. We, you've already heard one, but I want you to see these with your own eyes. Turn to John chapter 3. Just two passages here. Instead of me quoting them, let, let me just take you to them. And you know these passages. They're not new to you. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And one that you already heard Terry read for you this morning, turn to chapter 12. verse 32. Well, let's start in verse 31 so we, we, we see what, what he's saying. Now is the judgment. This is Jesus talking. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
So when Isaiah 11, 10 talks about the Messiah, the root of Jesse, standing as a signal for the peoples, this is what it's alluding to. This is alluding to Jesus being lifted up in the same way that Moses led his people out. We see the, the beginnings of the idea of the Exodus, which is going to travel throughout the rest of these verses. So we're talking about in, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, that's when Christ comes the first time. That's his purpose for coming. His co purpose for coming the first time is to, to present himself as the perfect Savior who has lived a perfect life, to die on the cross, be raised again, and be seated at the right hand of the Father so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Now, in the Old Testament Israel, the idea of Gentiles would have shocked the Jews although it's dripping from the pages of the Old Testament that God intended to save Jews and Gentiles. And we see that right here starkly in our verses here. Of him the nations shall inquire. That's reminding us of chapter 2 where we just read. The nations, not just Israelites, but the nations, all of the nations. And his resting place shall be glorious. Literally, it's a noun. His resting place shall be glory. It shall be glory. Wherever the Lord rests, it's glorious. Amen? That's what's so sweet about the new heavens and new earth. It, yes, there'll be no more sin, death, and dying, but what the sweetest about it is we're face to face with our Savior. We're in His presence, and where He rests, there is glory. And this is in something that has captivated Isaiah and will continue to captivate him throughout this entire book that we're studying. So the nations are going to come because Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be lifted up. So the, verse 10, in that day, I think it's talking about his first coming and what happens to provide that salvation for all. But look at verse 11. We have another in that day. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains. And he a remnant that remains of his people, and he names several nations, and they're all from the, from the vantage point of Isaiah and his day, aren't they? They're all from that vantage point. All of the people that God will redeem his people, from, all of the places God will redeem his people from. So we see Assyria and Egypt, the two main um, enemies in this day, but we also see Pathros and Cush. They're, they're down at the south in the upper part of Egypt, but across the Red Sea. We see Elam and Shinar. Shinar is the ancient name for Babylon. So Elam and Shinar, they're east of Assyria. So Assyria is kind of northeast of, of the promised land. And these are even further east. Hamath is in the north and from the coastlands of the sea over by Philistia on the other side, on, on the water, or maybe even the islands that are on the water. All of those places, north, south, east, and west, nothing will prohibit God from redeeming his people. It's a glorious promise to us. But if we look at the beginning of the verse, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. So it, it's already happened once in Isaiah's day, a second time. And all through this passage, we are given nods back to the Exodus. And we see it strongly right here in this verse. Extend his hand. The Lord will extend his hand. That's a phrase that's used all throughout the, the Pentateuch to talk about God's deliverance of his people. Just a couple of passages. Exodus 3, 19 and 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. 
So I, says Yahweh, I will stretch my hand, stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Just a couple of chapters later in chapter 6, verse 1. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will lead them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. The very next chapter, Exodus 7. Pharaoh will not let listen to you in verses 4 and 5. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land, out of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Many more we could go to, but I want to take you to the final one. In Deuteronomy, this idea of the Lord's strong hand and his deliverance guides all of Israel to teach their children why they should be obedient to Yahweh. Deuteronomy 6, 20 and 21, what they're supposed to pass down to future generations is this foundation for obedience When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes to fear Yahweh our God, for our God always that he, to fear our God always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment that Yahweh our God has commanded us to do. So this idea of a strong arm, the first time, he's getting ready to do something a second time. The first time he's talking about the Exodus. And this is the theme all through Scripture of the Exodus. The Exodus comes up all through Scripture of Jesus and another Exodus. An Exodus out from the the imprisonment and slavery of sin that Jesus leads out as the Messiah. So in that day is sometime future from Isaiah, but it still seems to be talking about the work of Christ when he comes as the Messiah. Look at verse 11, back in chapter 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from all these different countries. And then he says, he will raise a signal for the nations, a a repetition of this, still keeping us in the time of Christ and his work. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, And this language here, gathered from the four corners of the earth, is what is used in Matthew in the the, uh, Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, where it's the sign of the Son of Man that the angels would gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. It's the same idea used then of the last days. And you go, so Rob, you're really confused, aren't you? You've been telling us it's the time of Jesus, and now you're telling us it's also the last days? All say together, yes, that's what it is. 
all the way through this passage, we're seeing the perfection of the new heavens and new earth, and yet it's the expectation that it's already started now at the birth of Christ, at his life and his death and his resurrection, because it was powerful. It, has, it, it means something in our life. It, it has fruit. Remember, this is a fruitful branch, we learned in verse 1. So yes, that, that it's going to be perfect, and that's what 6 through 9 is telling us, that there has come a day it's be perfect, but yet there is also a day now that it's already inbreaking into our age. That's because when Christ comes, he allows those who trust in Christ, repent of their sins and trust in Christ, to have peace with God and to have peace with man, Right? That's the promise. You and I are inheriting that promise right now, and yet we are still with sin. We are still, um, at times, the cause of a lack of peace. That's why there's so many times in the Scripture that peace is commanded of us, right? Be at peace with all men as far as it, it's up to you. Guard the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace in Ephesians. So it is already here, and yet it's already and not yet. It flows right through our text, and it continues. Look back. Verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So there, the northern and southern kingdom are at enmity. They are in Isaiah's day, right? Northern kingdom um, partnered up with Syria, wanting the southern kingdom to join them in their alliance against Assyria. There's, there's uh, um, anonymity between them. It starts all the way back at the divided kingdom with Solomon's sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, that, that they're, they're, uh, they're at enmity with each other, so the kingdom is divided. Well, when is that going to be fixed? We read about it already in Ephesians, and we will read more from Ephesians in our benediction. We read about it already there. It's fixed when they come into contact with the gospel and are made together, those who are far off and those who are near, they're brought to peace in this new man, the church, because everyone comes to faith in Christ individually. So where will the enmity between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom be finally meted out? As, the North, as Jews come to Christ, the same as as Gentiles come to Christ, and perfected in the new heavens and new earth, when everyone there will be in Christ, Jew and Gentile, every tribe and tongue and people and nation will all be there. So it starts now with the preaching of the gospel, and it ends there. And you say, well, how do you know it starts with the preaching of the gospel? Because verse 14 follows verse 13. So look there at verse 14. But they, that is in this picture of 8th century B.C. Israel, they, Jew, the northern and southern kingdom, shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put up their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. So the sea of Egypt is the Red Sea, another nod back to the Exodus. The river is the Euphrates River. So the Red Sea is down in Egypt, down to the south, and Euphrates is north and east. So the entire area and all of their enemies will be subdued because God will do it. Now, how are we subduing the enemies of God now? Well, the best way to subdue an enemy of Christ is to preach Christ. Amen? That's the only way. The only way that an enemy of Christ becomes a child of Christ is through the preaching of the gospel, repentance of sin, and faith in Christ. 
So this is a picture now, because remember, in that day, it's using the 8th century picture of God and all the enemies of his people that God will overwhelm them to show us that in that day when the Messiah is lifted up and the gospel is given to us, that we are still overcoming the enemies of God. Even in this day, we're overcoming the enemies of God. Are there still enemies? Yes, because it's already and not yet. Will there be enemies in heaven? In new heavens and new earth? No. They will all meet their destruction as promised. And the gates will be closed to anyone who is unrighteous. Remember that in Revelation in the last chapter? The gates will be closed. There will be no one let in to the new heavens and new earth. So this is a picture as we interpret it today. We're not Israel with enemies there. We're the church with enemies all around. And they're not our enemies. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, right? Our enemy, it's the spiritual warfare going on. We are preaching the gospel to people. So how, does verse, how do verses 6 through 9 obtain? They obtain by the preaching of the gospel as God subdues these enemies. Look at the end of the text. Let's remind ourselves of verse 15. And Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, the perfect number seven. Remember all of our numerology that we learned about in Daniel and Revelation? That's this number seven, seven channels. It, this is the perfect work of recreation right in front of us. He strikes it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals, another reference to the Exodus. But now we're talking about spiritual salvation, not physical salvation, because this is Christ who has been lifted up. God's still working through him to provide this salvation. And there will be a highway from Assyria, from the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. He worked first. He's going to work again. He worked to, to free, uh, to set them free from slavery in Egypt, and he will work through Christ to set Jew and Gentile free from the slavery of sin. And it's the preaching of the gospel that overwhelms the enemies of God. And yet God is the one overwhelming his enemies, isn't he? He is patient now. He's long-suffering so that men and women would repent. So when we preach the gospel, God is long-suffering. He's not judging them now, but he promises judgment later. That's the whole section of John chapter 3, is it not? So when is this? It is now and then. It is the coming of Christ that, bring, that inaugurates this kingdom. And you and I, when we preach the gospel to others and ourselves, then we are having peace go out from us. How do we have peace within our body? Because we are living and believing and applying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are forgiven of our sins, so how can we hold grudges against others? Because God has forgiven them of their sins if they're in our church and, and, they're, and they're united with us. What right do we have to hold a grudge and stay angry with somebody? We are pursuing peace because we've been forgiven, because those who have been forgiven can forgive the greatest. Peace, the, the way peace invades the world is through the people of God preaching the gospel and loving each other and loving God right in front of them. And that's what's being talked about in this passage. John chapter 14, verse 27 says this, Peace I leave you, says Jesus. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So we, when we come into Christ, we have been granted peace. Peace with God first and foremost. Nothing else works without that, and Christ has provided that. And since we have peace with God, we can have peace with others, and therefore we have no fear. 
This is why the angels always say, don't fear. I know I kind of overwhelm you, they might say, if they, we were there. But don't fear, because you have peace with God, therefore you have peace with me. It's the foundation of all of that. John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you see the relevance for us today? We have peace in Christ, and we're walking in a world of tribulation, of trials, of death, of dying. We're walking in that world, and yet we can walk peacefully with others, and we have peace with God, and we can have peace in our own hearts. So it's not just the lack of conflict. It is the presence of Christ. That is the peace that's spoken of. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Even our marching orders are, have the umbrella of peace over the top of them. Two more passages, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Isn't it interesting as we return to that verse that we started our worship service on this morning, that we turn to that verse and the gospel is framed in the preaching peace. That's how Paul frames the gospel. The gospel was preached to you and to you, and he calls it, you have had peace preached to you. And Christ has provided peace because he's broken down that wall of enmity. And then in, in he says in chapter 4 that sums it up for us on how this affects us. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and then he describes this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Isaiah chapter 11 is telling us about Jesus. It's telling us about his first coming when he came and he lived and he died. And when he died, he was raised up as an ensign, as a signal to the nations, not just to the Jews, to all of God's people, raised up for all so that all would see him and all would bow before the cross. And you will either do it in this life or the next, says, says uh, Philippians, right? There will come a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that passage is referring to the people who will do it on their way to eternal destruction. Where are you today? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, this one that Isaiah prophesies about so clearly, so abundantly, all through his book, but no more greater so far than chapter 11 than with such clarity? Have you bowed before him? Have you, have you tossed aside your own strength? Have you, have you completely given up on trying to save yourself? Are you ready to turn to Christ today? Turn to Christ. Look to him Turn to him and say, I repent of everything I'm trying to do to earn my salvation, and I trust you and you alone. I don't know everything you just said. I'm not even sure I understand Isaiah chapter 11, but I do know this. I'm tired of striving in my salvation, and I want peace with you. I want rest with you. Repent today and turn to Christ, and salvation is yours today. And for the rest of us who have already done that, I hope that all these passages, one upon another upon another, has shown you that your job in this, this world that lacks peace at every turn is to preach peace and to live peace. We are preaching the gospel to those who don't know the Lord, and in, the, in, and in doing so, when God decides to save one, then we are involved in subduing the enemies of God. 
He does the subduing. He's the one. Now, this idea of highway will come back to many times in Isaiah, so I'm not going to harp on it here. But the idea of God providing the pathway to salvation, he does it. He just uses us to preach the peace of Christ. So we do it in our evangelism, but we also do it in our lives as we love each other and we extend the peace of Christ to each other. Because the world sees that, they don't know what to do with it. They just don't know what to do with it. This is why it's so discern, discouraging when you look online and see Christians eating up other Christians online. Why on earth would we do that? Do we not have enough enemies in the world? Stay off the internet if that's what we have to do, right? Pursue peace. Because this is what Christ came for. And Paul tells us that Jew and Gentiles are saved because pre peace was preached to them. The kingdom's going to advance. God is not going to be thwarted. He's not thwarted here. No matter who his enemies are, the kingdom will advance. He is summing up all things in Christ every minute of every day. And we get the joy of being part of it. And all we have to do is extend peace. That sounds like a lot better marching orders than the world wants to give me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace and mercy to us. We are grateful, Father, for the testimony that we've heard today of your um, sovereign hand giving Mike and his family peace. We are grateful the testimony of Isaiah bringing to us Christ so that we see Christ even from Isaiah and the clarity with which we see the peace that's offered through the cross of Christ. Would you equip us, Lord? That as you are advancing your kingdom, which is what you promise us you will do, we, no one can stand in your way. Even our disobedience will not stand in your way. And yet you are pleased to use us to preach the gospel, to live lives that draw others unto you because of the winsomeness of your character worked through us. And so we ask you, Father, to get a, a larger vision of the advancement of your kingdom as you sum up all things in Christ and we await for the day where peace is fueled by the righteousness of Christ with no sin left in the world. We long for that day, Father, but strengthen us until we get there. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.